Hey, everybody. This is Ellen Weatherford. And Christian Weatherford. And we are here with your favorite animal review podcast, Just the Zoo of Us, where we take your favorite species of animals, we review them and rate them out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. We are not zoological experts. And honestly, I might not even be a podcast expert at this point, <laughs> given my hiatus. Yeah. So Christian works for a healthcare company. So as you can imagine, what with the world happening, he's very, very busy. And so I've, we've been doing a lot of like guest episodes and stuff. So that's why you haven't been hearing the dulcet tones of Christian's voice as much <laughs> recently. But he's back. Definitely not replaced by a clone. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Are you a synth? There's only one way to find out. Is it a belly button related thing? No. This is a trap. It's I know far it. worse. <laughs> this is about animals, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Last episode, Christian went first. And so this time I'm going to go first. This week, I am talking about just in time for Invertifest, which is a fun little social media um, event, which is celebrating invertebrates. Oh. Yeah, that's going on like right now as we're recording this, but it will be over by the time this episode goes up. But oh, well, it's never too late to celebrate invertebrates. <laughs> this week, I'm talking about the Southern Flannel Moth. Nice. Mm -hmm. The scientific name is Megalopige, maybe Megalopige, hmm. something like that, Opercularis. And this species was submitted originally by Kathy Brooks. Oh, mi madre. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's Christian's mom. <laughs> Hi. And also by Emily Bell. So thank y'all both for suggesting this really cool animal. And I'm getting all of my information on this animal from University of Florida's Entomology and Nematology Department. They had some really, really good fact sheets on this. It's a handy group. Yeah. So this moth is not a super big moth. They're only one to one and a half inches long. For metric listeners, that's two and a half to three and a half centimeters. And the only other moth we've talked about the show is the Luna moth, which is huge. Mm -hmm. This is a little guy. If you look at your hand, it's about the length from like the end of your fingertip to like the first like segment of your finger. You know what I'm talking about? Like the first knuckle. Yeah. Is that a knuckle? Do yeah. you call this a knuckle? Joint. I, I guess. thought the knuckles were just like what's what connects your finger to your hand. I don't know. So now I'll be more generic to the first joint in the finger. There you go. Yeah, the first <laughs> joint in the finger. Uh, but the females are larger than males. So just a, just a tiny bit because they're not very big anyway. Okay. But you can tell them apart because males have much bushier antenna. So if you've seen like moth antenna, you know how they kind of look like feathery. Mm -hmm. So on males, that is very big and pronounced and bushy. But in females, like you can barely see it. They almost look like just um, strands. Huh. Yeah. So you will find them throughout the eastern United States, but they're most common in Texas, where they're also known as an asp, a Texas asp. That's interesting. I, I know. Guess, I thought that was a term for a snake. It is a type of snake. Huh. But they have, so there's a reason that they call them this. Okay. Um, that I'll get into in just a second. So the taxonomic family they belong to is Megalopygidae or Pygidae. I haven't settled on which way that's pronounced. And this is a whole family of flannel moths. So they, there are 11 species of flannel moths just in North America, and then there are a bunch of other species throughout Central and South America. Mm. So all throughout the Americas, you'll find types of flannel moths. 
but this is just one that I'm focusing on for right now. Okay. It's very important. (laughs) (laughs) So I will get started with our first rating, which is effectiveness. And if this is your first time joining us, we define effectiveness as physical adaptations and attributes that let an animal do a good job of the things it's trying to do. Okay. So I give the Southern flannel moth an eight out of 10. Okay. And the reason for this actually doesn't have to do at all with the moth part of the moth. So, you know how like with moths and butterflies, their life cycle is very defined. They are a caterpillar, then a cocoon, then a moth. The moth part is negligible. (laughs) (laughs) It is like, it's one of those things where they're a moth for like a blip in their life where they're just trying to reproduce. And really the bulk of their life cycle is in the caterpillar stage. Okay. So the larva, the caterpillar of the southern flannel moth has its own name. And actually, when your mom requested this, she requested it as the puss caterpillar. Huh. And that they have their own name for the caterpillar stage of their life. Interesting. Yes. This is the puss caterpillar. So when they hatch from an egg, the larva is like a yellowish green color. It's kind of like highlighter yellow. Mm. And it's covered in these long, thin spines that are surrounded by what's called setae, okay. which are hollow structures that are similar to hair. But it's not made out of the same thing as hair. So hair mm. that you would see on mammals is made out of keratin. Mm-hmm. And, and this is actually made out of chitin that grows from an insect. Okay, It's similar in structure, but not exactly the same thing. And the setae grows like surrounding these long spines and the spines are like hard and pointy. Mm -hmm. And as the larva gets older and goes through these molts, the hair gets thicker and thicker and thicker and thicker until you can't see the body of the caterpillar anymore. It's just hair. And it looks like um, it's like a dirty blonde color. And it's very, like, silky and smooth looking. Yeah. Are you getting a mental image? I think I've seen this. Yes. So it looks like a wig that has fallen on the floor Uh that has a faux hawk. Okay. So it kind of, like, comes up to a point on top of it. And it has, like, a crest down the body. So the kicker of this caterpillar is that now that hair has grown very, very bushy, it conceals the body of the caterpillar, but what it also conceals is those spines that I mentioned earlier. That's important because those spines are equipped with a highly potent venom. Uh. (laughs) So you cannot see them, but they are covered in super venomous spines. Interesting. Yes. So the venom is stored in these glands that are at the base of the spine. So the spine is hollow Mm -hmm. and there's venom stored in a gland at the bottom of them. And then these spines are able to puncture skin and it delivers that venom when any pressure is applied. It can be as gentle pressure as like you accidentally brushing against it. That's not great. No, it's not (laughs) for us. It's great for the caterpillar. (laughs) Works out super well for them. Huh. So the venom for humans, at least, is typically not fatal, but it causes extreme pain Mm -hmm. and really bad irritation to the skin. So you'll see a lot of redness and a lot of swelling in areas where that have come into contact with this caterpillar. Well, and plus, it's probably the case if you came in contact with it, you probably got pricked by more than one of its spines. Right. So you got you probably got a good dose of it, especially if you like grabbed it. Yeah. You know, like you probably. 
Yeah, it's not going to be good. <laughs> so um, the best treatment for a sting is to remove the spines from the site of contact. And these are like really, really tiny, mm-hmm. thin, like almost invisible spines. And the best way to remove them is to take a piece of tape and put the sticky side along like the contact site mm-hmm. and then rip the tape off. So it pulls the spines out. So that's that's like the first step. And then afterwards, you just do normal like bug bite stuff like cold compress and take some antihistamines to ease the swelling and then just just ride it out. It's going to. Yeah. People say the pain lasts for days. Not good. Yeah. It lasts a really long time. Are the spines long enough that you could like pull them with a tweezer if you wanted? It's just, it's one of those things where like, I guess you could, but mm. it would be really difficult and probably take a lot of time. Cause like, what if you got stung on your scalp or something? Your scalp? Or, um, like me, I have fairly hairy forearms, right? So if I were to put a piece of tape to that, I would be sacrificing some things there. <laughs> uh, wait, is it worth it though? I don't know. What's worth more to you? <laughs> Being in extreme pain or the pristine condition of your arm hair? <laughs> you got to make those decisions, babe. <laughs> So um, these venomous spines are a super reliable defense against predators, but there is one challenger that does threaten puss caterpillars a lot. Is it something that evolved specifically to counter it? No, it's not actually. (laughs) This is called the tachinid fly. Oh, okay. And this is a parasitic fly. Oh, no. So what it does is it, it doesn't eat the caterpillar. It lays its eggs mm-hmm. on the caterpillar, and the the eggs stay there for a while until the caterpillar pupates and goes into its cocoon. That's when the fly larva hatches, grows, eats the caterpillar, and then pushes its way out of the cocoon. So instead of a beautiful <laughs> flannel moth emerging from the cocoon, instead... Now a bunch of flies <laughs> have, have come out of the cocoon. So you're in for a little bit of a metamorphosis surprise. Rough. Yeah. Uh, it makes sense though. Cause like, isn't at that stage, the caterpillar is basically caterpillar soup while it's turning into a thing. You know, I know that that's how butterfly cocoons work, but yeah. I'm not a hundred percent sure that it's the same process for moths. Okay. Maybe it is. I'm not sure. I'll, I'll look into it later. So Those venomous spines are actually lost during the metamorphosis. So once they emerge as a moth, they're totally harmless. They can't do anything to you. So like other types of moths, their adult form just only serves the purpose of reproduction. That's it. Their entire body is covered in these really, really, really fluffy hair-like scales. Hmm. Um, So I mean, their whole body is completely covered in this really, really like super fluff. It's like this kind of creamy colored, Mm. like a goldish, whitish colored, just fluff all over their body, even like the wings are covered in these fluffy scales. Okay, so this must be where the flannel part of the name comes from. Yeah. So speaking to the texture, not so much the pattern. No, they're not like <laughs> lumberjack plaid. I would patterns. love that. I know you would. <laughs> that moth would fit your aesthetic so consistently. So yeah, that's what I gave them for effectiveness. I thought they were pretty good. That's interesting. I like it. They're they're very well suited to uh, survive caterpillarhood. I do okay. wonder about the hair, though. Because like you would think if not for the hair, you, maybe your predators would get some warning first. Well, the hair serves different purposes that I'll mm. go into in, oh, okay. in, in a minute. Okay. Predators have learned to avoid them. Oh, okay. So predators now, 
have learned like like birds and stuff have learned now okay i'm not gonna not gonna go for that caterpillar (laughs) it's a bad idea um humans not so much (laughs) well like humans that know better do but like little kids for example um don't necessarily know they just see something brown and fluffy and and moving slow enough for them to catch it yeah it's not intuitive (laughs) no not for humans so that's effectiveness. I'm going to move on to ingenuity, which for us is behavioral adaptations that let an animal do clever things and solve problems in its life. I'm giving this, um, I'm giving this moth and caterpillar a six out of ten for ingenuity. Okay, it's pretty good actually for a bug. I think. Yeah. Um, I think I we usually give like insects and stuff a little bit of a lower rating, um, because their behaviors are pretty straightforward and pretty cut and dry. This Mm -hmm. one has some really interesting ones though. So I thought that the way that they construct their cocoon is really interesting. Hmm. So they spin silk that they use to like form the basic kind of skeletal framework of the cocoon. This is common. That's how a lot of moths do it. They make this kind of silky stuff and they just kind of like wrap it around themselves to make the base of the cocoon. But then Once that's done, they actually remove the hair from their own body and pack it on top Uh, of the silk and they layer it down on top of the silk and they layer it on the bottom of the silk too. So in the interior of the cocoon, they like line it with, with the hair off of their body. Interesting. Yeah. So it, it kind of like insulates it on the inside and then it hardens on the outside to make like a protective sort of like shell. When they're done with it, what you end up with is this pocket constructed out of their own hair. Okay. Yeah. I thought that was really weird and kind of neat. At least they don't also use their spines. Mm, yeah. They, well, they still need those. <laughs> Could you imagine? Just, <laughs> like, oh, no. oh, look at this empty cocoon. It's all hairy. Ow. Oh, no. Got Ouch. me again. <laughs> well, sometimes that's you got to defend yourself somehow. Um, so also after each molt, the caterpillar eats what it leaves behind when it molts rather than just like leaving behind what it has shed, it eats that. Okay. So this is thought to help them prevent potential parasites from detecting them because the parasites can actually pick up chemical cues from their leftovers huh. and, and find them that way. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Parasites like, like flies and what I was talking about. Oh, okay. I was thinking more microbial that type of no thing. Oh, these okay. are like parasitic insects oh, okay, that, okay. that can use their chemical trail to to find them so they're kind of hiding their own evidence with that huh. and there's another thing that they do to avoid detection that i think is really funny <laughs> oh boy rather than just dropping poop where it falls <laughs> You know how most bugs, when they poop, the poop just lands wherever their butt is in that moment, and that's the end of the story for the poop. I haven't taken the time to consider this. (laughs) (laughs) That's not how it works for this caterpillar. They shoot their poop like a projectile. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) And it can get some real distance. There is a good video by like the the university of florida like the university of florida took this video uh-huh. of this caterpillar pooping and it gets some air it's like <laughs> it's like a whole body's length oh, of the no. caterpillar and it shoots it and it like arcs through the air <laughs> so it's like pew, like a little poop cannon that it, it shoots <laughs> so this serves the purpose of not only um throwing off parasites and predators off of their trail but it also keeps them from getting 
poop on the leaf that they're still currently eating. So if they're on a leaf that they're eating, they don't want to then poop on it. Like it could get into their mouth. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just saying the the safer work version being uh, don't defecate where (laughs) you eat. Yeah, yes. that's exactly what they're doing. <laughs> they're literally doing that. So they fire their poop like a little rocket. Yes. Oh, I wasn't ex- I wasn't expecting that. It was a very fun little surprise for me. Do they weaponize it? I only hope so. <laughs> oh, yeah, they didn't have enough weapons in their arsenal. <laughs> we have the short range, but what about the long range? So you need a melee option, and then you need a ranged option. They're really... It's a balanced build. <laughs> So that brings me to the final category, which is aesthetics. I I broke this up into the two different, the caterpillar and Mm -hmm. the moth. So I give the caterpillar a five out of 10 for aesthetics Mm. um, because you can't see their face or anything like that. It's literally just a clump of hair. Yeah. That's it. I mean, I guess that's a lot of people think that's cute and I could see why you would think that is cute. But for me, a lot of cuteness factors into like a face. So with there being no visible face, I really don't get the cute factor. It's kind of like the thing from the Adams Family. Mm-hmm. Or like a Tribble, maybe, like from Star Trek. It's a bit like that. What that is. Okay. <laughs> uh, I've heard it referenced, though. Yeah. It's, I think that's what it kind of looks like. And then the adult form of the moth, I give an 8 out of 10 for aesthetics because it's really, really pretty. So they're super fluffy. They have a really pleasant color to them. Yeah, it's just the moth is really pretty, but the the caterpillar looks like a bad toupee. So <laughs> there's that's all I got for that one. So going to wrap up with some miscellaneous information. I only have a little bit on this. Uh, So due to their fluffy appearance, children are the most likely to impulsively grab them. Mm -hmm. And also children being, you know, small and having weaker systems and everything, they then have more like extreme reactions to the sting. So it's really just they're very bad for kids. (laughs) Like it's bad to have them around if you have kids around. Um, so since they reproduce seasonally, so there's two times of year where you will see a lot of these caterpillars because they have like this sort of like baby boom, I guess. Sure. (laughs) Twice a year this happens. Um, and they're most abundant in the fall. So population booms of this caterpillar have resulted in school closures Wow! in um i found two in san one was in san antonio texas in 1923 and another one in galveston texas in 1951 where there were so many of these caterpillars and it was so dangerous for kids like i'm imagining this was probably a period of time when kids were likely to be walking to school right so if you're if like kids are going to be spending a lot of time walking or like out outdoors they're gonna be more likely to find these caterpillars so yeah there were so many of them around and kids were getting stung by them so often that they closed the schools crazy yeah i feel like if you find anything fluffy in nature just don't touch it if you find really mostly anything in nature (laughs) your safest bet is to not touch it (laughs) don't touch that tree don't touch that dirt nope (laughs) don't touch any of it it'll get (laughs) you 
Like, because in and this one is particularly uh, devious because it does to humans at least who have so many like domesticated animals that are fluffy and touchable and soft and cute and cuddly. Mm. We see like the fluffy look and we think, oh. I want to cuddle it. I have many things in my life that look like this, and I cuddle all of them. Surely this is no different. Maybe it's our own fault. I wonder if we, if we would have that tendency without domesticated animals. I don't know. It really worked against us this time. <laughs> so that's the southern flannel moth slash puss caterpillar. Interesting. Thank yep. you, baby. You're welcome. I wanted to take a quick second to thank our patrons on Patreon who help us out to keep the show going. Thank you to Christina Sanders, Brianna Feinberg, The Jungle Gym Queen, Jacob Jones, Paul Chomo, Ashley Tucker, Vikram Balika, Megan Clark, April Kamek, and Brandon Everfolly. Thanks, y'all. Well, it's your turn. All right, here I go. Let me hear it. My species for this week is the chambered nautilus. Woohoo! Scientific name, Nautilus pompilius. This species was chosen by Facebook poll. Oh, so by the way, since I haven't mentioned this in a while, we do, um, when whenever we're doing non-guest episodes, so episodes with me and Christian, for one of the species, they're chosen by social media poll, and those polls are up on Twitter, in our Facebook group, and I also figured out how to get them on Instagram. Oh, wow. Yeah, so um, follow us on Instagram, and we put the poll in our story when, okay. when they go up. So I'm, I'm not sure how it did across the other ones, but I know on Facebook it was a fairly large lead. It, on Twitter as well, it was it was a bloodbath. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So yeah, that came from a Facebook poll, but also previously was requested by Kristen Bailey, who requested the Nautilus in general. I'm getting my information from NOAA's website, fisheries.noaa.gov, and Animal Diversity Web at animaldiversity.org, and lastly, the Aquarium of the Pacific, aquariumofpacific.org. So... The Nautilus. Yes. It is a cephalopod, not unlike octopus and squid and the cuttlefish. So it is not a snail. It is not a snail. Okay. So let's talk about what it looks like. Uh, I think this is a pretty common one to have seen a picture of, at least. Um, not so much in real life, though. They're common in art. I feel like you see a lot of art of these yeah. guys. Yeah, they do have quite an inspiration aesthetic-wise, which yeah. I'll note on later. <laughs> How big do you think they are, out of curiosity? Um, dinner plate size. Okay. Like, I, I am imagining that the shell part uh -huh. of it is about the size of a dinner plate. Okay. That's my thought. Gotcha. I think I would have guessed something similar. Mm -hmm. They're not actually that big. Really? So their shells in the adults grow to be 20 to 25 centimeters in diameter or 8 to 10 inches. Okay. Well, I mean, that's about close to... Uh, that's smaller than a dinner plate. Is it? I'm How big sure. is a dinner plate? <laughs> <laughs> Bigger, I think. And they can weigh over two pounds or 900 grams. That's not that big. Yeah, That's not, not that heavy. They're not, they're not too big. They're found in the tropical western Pacific. Um, so we would have not seen one in our neck of the woods, so no. to say. <laughs> we are right up against the Atlantic. Yes. They belong to the taxonomic family Nautilidae, which consists of two genuses. The Allonautilus and the Nautilus. This one belonging to the Nautilus genus, uh, found at shallower waters. Still kind of deep, though, whereas the Allonautilus are even deeper and not a whole lot is known about them. Ooh, mysterious. Yeah. Now, what they look like, they have a spiral shell um, with several tentacles coming out the front, as, long as, as well as their eyes, and also a hood that can cover the opening in the shell. It's a little bit difficult to describe its 
positioning, I would suggest a picture. I guess you will see one when you look at this <laughs> podcast episode. You know what? I think they kind of look like you stuffed a squid inside of a snail shell. <laughs> yeah, it does kind of look like that. However, maybe the shell is upside down to, as to what you might be imagining. So I'm going to jump right into it with their effectiveness. I'm going to give them a 9 out of 10 for effectiveness. Oh, very good. And there's only one thing I could really ping them on. Maybe one and a half things. Oh, okay. So one of the things is their eyes. They actually have pretty primitive eyes compared to other cephalopods. Um, so we talked about how the cuttlefish has very interesting eyesight and um, most squid and octopi. Many <laughs> octopuses. <laughs> no, you got it. You got it. How other cephalopods have better <laughs> eyes. <laughs> These have pinhole eyes. Pinhole eyes. Yeah. Is this like a pinhole camera? Yes. Or uh, that experiment where you like, where you're in a tent and it's dark and you poke a hole in the side of the tent and you can see like an image reflected on the other side of the tent. You know. That yeah. Kind of thing. So this kind of eye lacks lenses or a cornea. Oh, dear. So that probably forms blurry images at best. So it causes the Nautilus to depend more on its sense of smell to find prey. Interesting. But not great eyesight. You said they live in kind of like mid-range to deep water. Yep. I imagine the deeper they are, the less they're going to rely on eyesight. It's true, but they do. So they're nocturnal, first of all. Okay. Well, there and, you go. And they, they tend to come up closer to the surface at night to feed. Um, so they're a little bit light sensitive. That makes sense. Yeah. So I guess they're like, if they didn't really need eyesight that much, they're probably like, eh, yeah. we don't need to work on that too bad. <laughs> My next point for effectiveness is their tentacles. They're a little different from the other cephalopods in that they don't have suckers on their tentacles. They have grooves. Grooves. Yeah. They kind of look like, to me, the bottom of a gecko toe. Okay. Okay. But, With these little like wavy ridges. Yeah. That's what it looks like to me. Okay. Um, so still good for grabbing, just not in the same way that the other cephalopods are. It's more like friction-based than suction-based. Yeah, yeah. The next thing that I find the most interesting about them is their shell, mm -hmm. specifically the formation and shape. Yeah. The body of the Nautilus resides in the newest, largest section of the shell. So it's it's not the case that the whole shell is hollow and it resides in that whole space. There's chambers. And only the newest chamber is accessible to the body. So that's because as the Nautilus gets older, it's closing the space behind it as it's growing bigger and moving forward into the new parts of the shell. Oh, okay. So it's creating new chambers in the shell as okay. it gets bigger. Huh. Yeah. Okay, so I'm imagining like I've seen kind of like cross sections of right. the shell and it has these divisions. Yeah, yeah. so those, those are the chambers. Oh, so that happens as it's growing. Yep. Okay. Yep. And the, the body itself resides in the last newest area. Whatever that is. Yep. Okay. Yep. Do they like grow continually over the course of their life? Or I mean, they, they... The, there's a cap, of course, but yeah. So yeah, that's what it looks like. A lot of the times you will see cross-section pictures of their shell. I think it's used as an example of the Fibonacci sequence, I believe. Mm, yeah. Sure, sure, sure. But it's very aesthetically pleasing. It's beautiful. Now, those chambers also have a purpose. The chambers have an argon-nitrogen gas mixture and a liquid saline solution. And then those chambers are connected by a tube called a siphuncle. And that gives the Nautilus the ability to change the ratio of liquid to gas, letting it control its buoyancy. Okay, so this is how it's going up and down. Yes. So it can, it can do this at will. It can make itself neutrally buoyant or positive or negative. So go up, down, or just stay put. Huh. Yeah. So this is actually very similar to how submarines work. Okay. I'm seeing <laughs> it. I'm seeing yeah, it. Yeah. 
So I thought that was really interesting. That's very uh, advanced engineering. <laughs> and the inside of their shells are lined with uh, what you would call mother of pearl. Oh, very cool. Yeah, so it's that shiny, silvery stuff that you can will sometimes see on oyster shells and the clams and stuff. Nice. Uh, the next thing I'd like to talk about is their leathery hood. So this sits on top of their tentacles and eyes uh, so that it can pull its entire body into the shell. And then that hood, it kind of like seals it all up. Oh, like how a snail can like retract into their shell. Right. But the snail doesn't really have anything that closes up the shell for them. Yeah. Their form of locomotion is jet propulsion, uh, like other cephalopods. So they can suck in water and shoot it back out. So that gives them vertical movement. Uh, if you were to look at the axis in the ocean that way. So they have the buoyancy for up and down and then the propulsion for side to side, basically. Mm -hmm. And finally, their lifespan and reproduction is a little odd, especially for cephalopods. Ooh. So they're very long lived compared to other cephalopods. They, I like it. They can live for 15 to 20 years. That's quite a bit. Most yeah. of them are like pushing a couple years, right. right? But here's the problematic thing. They aren't sexually mature until they're 10 to 15 years old. Goodness. They are taking their time. And their eggs take 9 to 12 months to incubate after they lay them. So I'm going to come back to that later because that has implications. Okay. Uh, next, I'll move on to ingenuity. I didn't have a whole lot to go on here. Sure. I just gave them a 6 out of 10. <laughs> they're put, good at floating. <laughs> I put nocturnal here as a point of ingenuity. That probably helps in some way for... <laughs> helps them make up for their horrible, horrible eyesight. <laughs> And I'm kind of giving them the benefit of the doubt since I know other cephalopods are generally fairly intelligent. Well, okay. So I actually, um, this will be a spoiler for an upcoming guest episode. So I won't give too much away about who the expert is, Okay. but we were talking about a type of squid and they mentioned that this one type of squid didn't have too much going on in the, <laughs> in the ingenuity department. Okay. So <laughs> we have, so I guess like we, the only cephalopod we've talked about on the show is this cuttlefish, That's true. which really had it. Like, it's like the top there. Yeah. And octopuses are do, do also tend to be pretty smart. Um, yeah. But I don't know if that like reaches all the way across the whole cephalopod yeah. group. I don't know. I'm just giving it a 6 out of 10. That's yeah. fine. That's fine. With a lack of anything else there. And then finally, aesthetics. I'm giving an 8 out of 10 for aesthetics. Mm, they're beautiful. I find them very interesting to look at. So I didn't really talk about the coloration, but the colors are primarily white and then also a secondary color that ranges from brown to orange. I've seen it be like bright red, too. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. It could be like a like a blood red almost. Yeah. yeah. So cool. It has like a stripey pattern type thing. Mm -hmm, like ti They're like tiger stripes. A little bit, yeah. They're like reversed tiger stripes. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And then their their hood also has the, the, the coloration of the brown orangish color, too. Mm-hmm. The other things I want to talk about aesthetics. I thought their tentacles are cute. They're not long and gangly like you see in other cephalopods. They're just short and there's a lot of them. <laughs> and I feel like their overall design is pretty unique. Like there's nothing else out there that really looks like them. Like you wouldn't ever mistake this for something else. I right. Think. Yeah. I know there's other types of nautilus. Yeah. There's other types of nautilus is not. Nope, not going to try it. <laughs> <laughs> not a lot? <laughs> I don't know. Not a There are other ones out there, yes. But, I mean, as far as Nautilus goes, they're so unique, you wouldn't mistake them for anything else. True. It's iconic. Yeah. It's a good design. And you know what? I like their highest, too, because they have kind of like those, don't they? Don't they have like 
cute round eyes. So these are the pinhole eyes. Um, so what you're thinking of, it's mostly not an eye. It's like a stalk with like a little hole in the center of it. Really? Yeah. That's very weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's strange. <laughs> huh, how bizarre. Yeah. Miscellaneous info. Talk about the conservation status. So surprisingly, there's no IUC enlisting for these guys. We see that a lot with like deep sea animals. Sure. Though. However... At the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora, or CITES, held in Johannesburg, South Africa in September of 2016, the entire family of chambered nautiluses, the Nautilidae, were listed in Appendix 2 of the treaty. And Appendix 2 includes species that, although currently not threatened with extinction, may become so without trade controls. It's an agreement to the countries that are in that treaty, to say, you know, we we will, we are going to limit the trade and capture of these animals. Mm-hmm. And that's because they're threatened by overfishing uh, for their shells. So their shells are a collector's item uh, just for aesthetics purposes. They're yeah. not really caught for food. This is another one of those animals where, like, their beauty really ends up kind of being their downfall. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's such a big problem combined with habitat destruction because of their slow reproduction rates. Mm. Because since they're they're not sexually mature until later in life, there's a good possibility that they won't even reach being sexually mature sure. um, for various reasons. Other things in that appendix are manta rays and sharks. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. And surprisingly, there's quite a few popular references to the Nautilus in general. So the first nuclear-powered submarine in the world that launched in 1954... The USS Nautilus was named after it. Mm. So I mentioned there's some parallels between the Nautilus and how submarines work and how they control their buoyancy. There's a lot of like engineering things that are inspired by yeah, sure. what happens in nature. So I wonder if this was an example of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's currently a submarine called the Nautilus, right? Maybe. I think it's... Um... Oh, you're thinking of the, the scientific uh, thing that record video of yeah they, they they do cool live streams and stuff like i think that's the name of the boat not the oh is it I'm not, i don't remember i know that they do a lot of really cool sometimes they'll stream the videos that they're right, taking right. where they're doing like deep sea exploration mm-hmm. and you'll see all sorts of really cool stuff i think they had one really funny one where they saw like a gulper eel and they were like losing their minds yeah, over yeah, it. yeah. <laughs> uh, also it is the subject of oliver wendell holmes famous poem the chambered nautilus which was shared by Bob Gant as a comment on this Facebook poll. Very good. Yeah. So it's it's a pretty interesting poem and also what led up to it. So Holmes is from Massachusetts, which is in the United States. And he wrote that poem in 1858, or three years before the beginning of the U.S. Civil War. Wow. So there was a lot of tension going on in the country at the time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the poem speaks to the life and death of a Nautilus, and it's seen as a metaphor for human life and growth. And I will recite the third stanza of five. Year after year beheld the silent toil that spread his lustrous coil. Still, as the spiral grew, he left the past year's dwelling for the new. Stole with soft step its shining archway through, built up its idle door, stretched in his last found home, and knew the old no more. So what that's talking about is how it's growing those chambers and growing, like moving into the bigger chamber and sealing off the back one. Interesting. So the metaphor there is to grow, you have to sometimes seal yourself off from your past. Oh, man. 
Mm, I hadn't thought of that when you were talking about how they how they like develop, but yes. that's really interesting. That's a very poetic um, concept. Yeah, yeah, and I encourage anyone who's interested uh, to go check out the full poem. Mm, that's very nice. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Thanks, Bob, for that. Uh, I saw that you commented that, and I also found it referenced in some of the sources I was looking at. <laughs> so I figured it was worth mentioning. I think I feel like the Nautilus is an animal that I see very frequently in paintings and um sculpture work mm -hmm. and architecture and stuff like maybe just because of that sort of like golden ratio right. of the spiral to their shell like it's that's such a pleasing pattern to humans that like that's something that we emulate in our art a lot yeah i think i've even seen someone build a nautilus out of chocolate Yes. Yes. I remember this. I remember watching this. It was very good too. It was really cool. Cause didn't they use like white chocolate to get like the white part of the shell? I don't recall. Yeah. But oh. I, I remember it being very, very interesting and pretty uh, spot on. Although I think they made it bigger than they actually are. So. Probably. <laughs> yeah. Cause like I'm remembering the video as the sculpture being like enormous. Yeah. It was pretty large. Maybe that's why I thought the Nautilus was bigger than it was. Mm hmm. Maybe because like when you see it depicted without any sort of context, the yeah. the scale you might imagine is is different. Yeah, so I'm I'm noticing that's a theme with a lot of underwater creatures where you see pictures of them without something else in the frame to scale them against. Because there is nothing else yeah. for like um, unless, twenty miles. Unless it's next to another animal that you happen to be very familiar with. Yeah, that's uh, true. But like the chances of an animal being next to another animal in the deep sea are right. very low. Right. <laughs> So that's actually why I suggested the barrel eye be added to the poll as well, because I recently discovered the barrel eye is not as big as I thought it was, <laughs> thanks to Animal Crossing. <laughs> I don't know how big I thought they were. I, I guess I imagined they were about football size. I thought they were like, I don't know, a meter long or something. Wow. <laughs> that's very big. <laughs> But no, they're teeny. I feel like in the deep sea, there's like things are either microscopically small or like ungodly huge. <laughs> they're either <laughs> they're either like plankton or massive behemoths sure. that live for six thousand years. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the chambered nautilus. Very good. I bet it shares an um, etymological root with the word nautical. Yes, most likely, yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. That was very good. Thank you, honey. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. Well, that is all we've got for this week. So thank you to everybody who has spent this time with us. We really appreciate y'all. Um, you can come hang out with us in the virtual space where we've been doing 100% of our hanging out over the last <laughs> few weeks, <laughs> just in case you haven't gotten enough of hanging out virtually you can come do that with us uh we're on facebook we're on twitter we're on instagram just search the title of the show and you will find us um if you have an animal species that you want to hear us review you can either send those to me via email and my email address is ellen at just the zoo of us.com you can hit us up on social media for those we keep a running list um of all that stuff just figure it out you can get them to us. It's okay. It's not that complicated. Um, and for my final note, I would like to thank Louis Zong for letting us use his song Adventuring off of his album B-Sides, which we use as our intro and outro music. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. We really love it. And that's all. All right. It's good to be back. Thanks for joining me, Christian. Anytime.
I love you. I love you. And I love you, listener. That's when you're supposed to say it back. I see you as a close friend, listeners. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. Bye.